Hello, folks. Welcome to another Loft Podcast. Uh, Noliantos in studio with Mr. James Huck Harris. Uh, glad to have him. He's one of our esteemed Loft instructors and uh, started out his career at the United States Naval Academy. Went on to fly 100 missions in Vietnam off the USS Enterprise and then on to Continental, finishing out his career as a 777 captain. Um, we are thrilled to have him in studio, and we had a great conversation about just about everything I can think of and could think of. Uh, please enjoy. Calling your fired. Let's check can we else. start with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah we can start there. <laughs> Mr. Harris, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, before we even get started, we were just doing a FAR 6158 check for a guy who said that he was a SWAT um, on the SWAT. I, I, I forget the county. It probably doesn't even matter. Uh, for 25 some odd years. Yes. And he just said that... Um, he has raided a bank before with his SWAT team uh, where the bankers were armed, and he was more concerned about the check ride than he was about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to tell a story. I'm sitting in the back, and I said, what did he just say? <laughs> he would rather storm a bank in his SWAT gear with armed assailants than take a check ride. So, you know, there, there you go. That's that for you. Um, James Huck Harris. Yes. I believe that's your name. Huck is your call sign. Yes. You, um, if I recall correctly, have spent some time in the Navy, 25-some-odd uh, years, if I recall correctly. 31, actually. 31 years. Active in Navy. reserve. What were you flying in the Navy? Well, I, my first assignment for fleet aircraft was the F-4 Phantom. Beautiful. One of my all-time favorites. Yes. I have an F-4 ejection seat. <laughs> I love the thing. The old Martin Baker. Yes. Yes, and you flew that, um, if I recall correctly, uh, 100 missions some on in Vietnam? I had 100 combat missions in Vietnam. In the F-4? In the F-4J, yes. Off the Enterprise. Off the Enterprise. Outstanding. That is neat. That is really neat. Um, from there, when did you end up at uh, Miramar for, under the Top Gun program? Well, of course, I came out to Miramar for the F-4 RAG, which is now – it's – called the Replacement Air Group. I went to Vietnam in Fighter Squadron 143. The world-famous puking dogs spent nine months in 100 combat missions. We came back from that, and I got chosen to go through the Top Gun School, which is six weeks long, okay. as a Top Gun student. That was kind of the inception of that school, correct? It happened in 69. I went through the Top Gun School in 73. Okay. And then I went on my second cruise, which was on the USS America to the Mediterranean, spent eight months flying the F-4J off the USS America. Then I was very fortunate to get shore duty orders for three years to be a Top Gun instructor. Outstanding. Outstanding. In the F-4 as well. Actually, we flew F-5s, T-38s, and A-4s painted up like MiGs. So we were the bad guys. You guys were yeah, the aggressors, correct? Yes. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. That's really fun. <laughs> they kept me current in the F-4 also, right. but I didn't fly very often. Right. So you were you were Tom Skerritt. You were Viper. Yeah. Yeah, I was Viper, and I'd like to have been called Viper, but <laughs> my first day there, they say, 
you know, you look like Huckleberry Finn, so you are Huck. <laughs> and, of course, as soon as I opposed that, it stuck. It, it stuck. Uh, Rubber stamped on my forehead. <laughs> Huckleberry Finn, that's where it came from. Most oh, guys don't mean. know my name is Jim. That's just mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's just mean. Well, I think you worked here for several months before I knew your name was Jim. Yeah. Oh, you, you, you introduced yourself as Huck. I thought maybe I just now told you that I was Jim, and that's the first time you heard it. It could be. It could Everybody be. calls me Huck. It could be. <laughs> You're one of our esteemed instructors here, and uh, we're glad to have you. Um, with your background then in the military, you then transitioned into the airlines, into Continental, correct? That's correct. When I checked out of Top Gun on active duty in 77, I was in one of the first classes hired at Continental after a long dry streak at Continental Airlines. So yeah, I got on. That was a good time to get in. Beginning of 2000 guys hired. Right. And then you actually ended up flying the line and then ended up in the training program as well, correct? Yes. How I long did you do the training program? Well, I did the training program for my last 10 years. My other 21 years, I flew the line as either just a line pilot or a line check airman on the 737, the 727, and the DC-10. Oh, wow. Okay. DC-10. What a beautiful, beautiful oh. airplane. I did my interview with the DC-10 simulator. Oh. That's a beast. Um, the... From the military to the airline transition, which a lot of folks did in that time period as well, now it's a little bit more, I wouldn't say difficult, but a little bit more of a roundabout route to go from military to, to airline. Um, again, from the standpoint that the military doesn't want to lose them and, you know, the, there's a, the, the pay is increased, the benefits have increased, and et cetera, et cetera. Do you still think that that is a good route to take? If your end goal, and I, I assume that your end goal wasn't necessarily airlines at first. It was military service. And then the uh, airline popped up on the radar and you said, yeah, that might be something I want to do as a secondary career. Uh, is that true? That's pretty accurate. I am a graduate of Annapolis. So I spent four years at the United States Naval Academy, graduated in 69. And I was true blue Navy, yep. going to make it a career until – Basically, until the airline started hiring and the flying in the fleet went to very few landings per month, right. sitting in the Indian Ocean for 100 days oh, boy. instead of a whole lot of landings. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I had over 350 carrier landings, and I'd like to go out and get some more. Sure. But they weren't getting much, and I saw that I could still fly fighters right across the tarmac in the reserve squadrons, and I could make – a fair amount of money and have a lot of time off Brilliant. in the airlines. Okay. So airline and reserves is what you did? Yes, I did. Okay. And do you still see that, getting back to my original question, do you still see that that's a, a viable transition, uh, you know, currently for military into the airlines? I do. Uh, you get an awful lot of training in the military, probably more training than you're ever going to need in the airlines. And then the airline training has got a little different slant on things. So you learn some things you didn't learn in the military. I never had a flight director in the Navy. Right. Never flew a flight director. Um, never had anti-skid, never had an autopilot. Right. But the, the training is so thorough and landing aboard the ship, I've done a lot of types of landings and a lot of things and <laughs> landing aboard the ship at night yeah. is the most demanding flying a guy could possibly do. Well, I'm sure everybody's seen that study where they, they hooked you guys up to heart monitors and you getting shot at was not nearly as stressful as coming back and landing on the boat. 
That's exactly right. Not yeah. too many people know that. But <laughs> yeah. That's when the sine wave really yeah. reached the amplitude. That's unbelievable. <laughs> But that goes to show just exactly what that poor guy said, that he'd rather get shot at in a SWAT uniform than take a check ride. <laughs> I went around five times missing the wires one night. After being shot at, had to go to the tanker twice in the Gulf of Tonkin, or I would have run out of gas, and I finally made it on my six pass. Holy smokes. you got to start losing confidence after four, right? <laughs> Do doesn't get any easier. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So five-time bolter, and then you're, you went back for gas, came back for the six, and caught the and caught one of the wires. I actually went for gas twice because I was running out. Twice. Twice to the tanker, having trouble plugging. What if he wasn't there? Do you have to eject? I, I would have had to. Wow. Holy smoke. Then the guys in the gray suits are down there waiting for you. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion, I yeah. assume. Yeah. Uh, good Lord. So you still think it's a viable then transition from a military to, to if that's – because I think sometimes now from what – and again, I'm not, I don't want to be make a blanket statement on this, but uh, from the military folks that I've run into, especially with the GI Bill that we do some of the training here, that they got in the military with, a, with the interest of their end goal being the airlines. And I don't think that really used to be the case. I, as you just said, you were you know U.S. Navy to the, to the core, and that was going to yeah. be the, the, the end all to end all. How long were you in the reserves then? Well, I spent a total of 31 years in the Navy, and eight years of it was active duty, actually 12 if you add the years at the Naval Academy. So I spent 31 years total from the time I raised my right hand and got my head shaved <laughs> to the time I got the certificate that says on behalf of a grateful nation. All right. Excellent. That's fabulous. Um, once you transitioned to the – did you find that the transition from the airlines or a correction from the military to the airlines was difficult other than the flight director stuff you just mentioned? Um, was there a, a huge difference to you? Because I know it was – for me coming from the civilian world into the airline world, it was night and day. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was used to going to CAE and getting free coffee and donuts. And when I went to the airlines, you, you didn't get that anymore. No, <laughs> so you didn't. it was quite the transition for me. But did you feel the same? Well, similar – I felt like I had more than enough flying skills. But as you know, at the airlines, they approach ground school as if you're going to build the airplane. Yes. When yeah. it came to the electrical system, you're looking at saying, how am I ever going to use this? Right. So. Yeah, three months. I think three months of training just for the flight engineering program for me. Right. And it was you bet your job every time yep. you stepped in class or took a test or got in the simulator. Sure. Certainly for the first six months, too, on probation. Yes. Yeah. So what did you start off at uh, with uh, Continental? What, what airframe? I started off as a second officer in the 727. Excellent. So did I. Excellent. How long did you have to do that for? I did that for f about 14 months, and then I upgraded to first officer. Excellent. On the 727. Then there was a furlough that didn't affect me, except that it bumped me to DC-10 second officer. Okay. I think I've told the story before, but that's when we had the, the DC-10s and the 727s, the DC-10... Fly engineers were sitting by the pool, so they didn't have anything to worry about. Yeah. The 727 guys are studying their masses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's nice. 7-2, then to the panel of the DC-10. But you spent a little time as an FO on the 7-2. Yes. And then uh, panel on the DC-10. Panel on the DC-10. Then where? Went from DC-10 to back to FO on the 727. Okay. And then Continental went into their Chapter 11 bankruptcy right. which, with Frank Lorenzo. Yes. And I honor the His union. name shall not be mentioned on this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> I don't mention it often. 
but I honored the union's position, so I was out of work for three years. Okay, all right. But you were you still in the reserves at that point? I was. Okay, that so that's a helped. saving grace, and I had just finished a master's degree at USC. Now you're just showing off. So that <laughs> just showing off. I once had a coffee maker that wasn't working. <laughs> well, I that, look at your resume and I chuckle out loud. I'm like this overachieving motherfucker. <laughs> Been accused of that a few times. Nicely done, though. But Nicely what done. I did during the strike was I decided, you know, I got this new shingle. Right. Might as well put it to work. Okay. And I'm going straight up and straight down, pulling six Gs out at Miramar. Right. So other people had a tougher decision to make. Sure. My decision was pretty easy. So were you able to go then – I don't know how this works, so excuse my ignorance, but were you then able to just sign on for full-time with the reserves at that point for those three years? I put in for several temporary active duty periods. Okay. But again, I was working for a company called Titan Systems. Oh, yeah. And they put me in charge of a submarine laser communication project where we sent neodymium uh, YAG laser down through the ocean to a submarine that oh, had yeah. a special receiver. Yeah. So we wanted to see if we could make that concept work. And then I'd go out in the afternoons and fly my F-4, and then all of a sudden we transitioned to the F-14. That's neat. That's really neat. Yeah, my grandfather, uh, Pete Hughesville Jr., he worked for – um, the government on uh, submarines and developed was uh, uh, highly involved in the MOS program. Oh yes, um, for the submarines, and he spent his entire life working on that. I actually have a MOS. Oh, I don't even know if I should say this. Should I even say this? I have a MOS propeller in my office. We're gonna I'm have to take not, you. I'm probably not supposed to have that, am I? I have to take you out and shoot you now. <laughs> I think that program has been declassified since Tom Clancy's been talking about it all the time. <laughs> um, oh, so that so you actually then uh, you just kind of hit the 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 working world. As far in, in that three-year period on I furlough, did. and your I assume that your intent was just to hold and wait out the storm, knowing full well that they were going to come back and, yes. and bring you back. Yes, three years you went back after everything got cleared up, and I believe that uh, man that she'll name nameless departed the area. Yes, he was still there for a while, and uh, the punishment was that they took us far senior to the captains they'd hired during the strike. And they made us fly second officer for them Oh, for about sweet. about eight months. Okay. And then we had to fly first officer for them for another 14. And then they said, okay, you can assume your normal seniority. And that's when I checked out in 88 as captain on the 737. Oh, brilliant. Congratulations. That's neat. That's very it neat. It was fun. And then how long did you fly that airplane for? That's a great airplane. It is. A little over 10 years. And they made me a line check airman on it. So I did a lot of IOE. Checking out new captains, new first officers. Excellent. So you didn't fly the line, the line very long before you became a, a, an, I, a, an IOE instructor? Actually, the IOE instructors have a normal schedule, fly the line the whole time. They just put a new first officer in on one of the trips. They buy the other first officer's trip. He gets to sit at home. Got it. Same thing with the captain. They'll buy his trip, <clears throat> put a new captain in, and I'll ride the first officer's seat and check him out. Excellent. Excellent. So 7-3, you did that for a little while? Did that until 98, so 88 until 98, or 87 until 98. And then in 98, we got the 777, and I was initial cadre. I was asked to come into the training department to be the initial cadre to train 777 guys. Wow. How helpful was Boeing within that process? They were wonderfully helpful. In fact, we went up there. Did you go through their training then? I I I didn't. The very first guys... Just before me, weeks before me, went through their program, and then we established at United's Training Center in Denver, 
our initial instructors became our instructors, and then we put the whole initial cadre together before we even had airplanes. Wow. Holy and you had Did you have the simulators before you had the airplanes on? Uh, we didn't even have ours. We used United's facilities there at Stapleton. Got it. And we trained there for a year and a half before we got our first simulator. Wow. wow. We went up to Boeing and got an aircraft 001, about 15 Czech airmen <laughs> with our Fed right. and our fleet manager. And we went up for three takeoffs, three landings, Omni, Omni, VOR. Wow. In the 777. I just saw, I don't know if you'd heard, but I just saw uh, through the wires that 001 was just retired, the 777. No kidding. Yeah, I think it went to a, um, an Asian carrier, and they just retired it. No kidding. I was like, man, it just seems like that airplane just showed up on scene. It really you know? did. God, what a beautiful airplane. Really yeah, I'm did. sorry I never got to fly that. We, at, 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 at our airline, at American, they had just started receiving them when I left. And uh, boy, you see those things on the ramp, and it is it is awe-inspiring to watch the just the front looks like it's four miles wide. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. In fact, you can put a 757 in the intake. I've heard that yeah. of the a fuselage will fit in there, correct? The fuselage yeah. will if you didn't have a cowl. Right. I think they're cheating a little bit on that sure. description. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's a huge, huge motor. So, how long did you fly the 777 then for? I flew it for about 11 years. I retired at 61. Oh, okay. A little early, I could have gone to 65. Oh, so you were still there when they went to 65? Yes. Okay. You chose to punch out at 61. You just had to come work for Loft. Uh, you know, it took me 10 years to figure out I needed to come here. <laughs> but what I had to do was I had to go hunt hogs at night. All right. And prairie dog hunting. Sure, of course. And I had a lot of reloading and long-range shooting to do. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. Excellent. Were, were you actually flying international then at that point when you left? Yeah, I flew international the whole time. Okay. In fact, I... Yeah, I can't I'm, imagine there's a lot of domestic flying yeah. on 777. Another fella and I developed the over-the-pole route, and we were the first airline to fly a two-engine airplane over the North Pole. Wow. So we did that initially on our Hong Kong trips, and then we did our Shanghai and all those things over the North Pole. So I was the I flew the fourth airplane over the North Pole. They had all Czech airmen doing it at first. Tell me you took some pictures. Oh, I did. <laughs> And, 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 you know, Santa's homeland is dirty brown. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It's really something. I <laughs> well, thought it was going to well, be. Well, it's probably not now. Night. It's probably gone because of global warming, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's neat. So, I mean, did you have then a, um, I assume, were there alternates or was it just a divert porn? It was like a Hawaii thing where you just turn around and come back? Yeah, we were 180-minute ETOPS. And we also had 210-minute authorization. So we had ETOPS airfields okay. that had to be within 180 minutes, and you'd just draw 180-minute circles, and you'd had to be your flight always in 180-minute circles. And then we had some to, to a divert. To a divert. Okay. And they were some austere places. I bet, yeah. In fact, we also had some emergency fields. And if you ever had to go to the emergency field, that meant that you just delivered the biggest diner they had ever seen. <laughs> Because it was going to land, but it wasn't going to take off. Oh boy! Oh boy! Yeah, I think they just recently too had some issues in the in the news where they they had to divert to one of those type of airports and they sat on the tarmac for I read a better it. part of two weeks or something. I read about it. <laughs> they claimed that the AP was off, but I don't think that was true. I think they had the AP running. That's very interesting. And the ETOP stuff, they um, that. That in itself was, I think, a process. I, I don't recall which airline was actually the first to start going down that ETOPS road. Was it Continental? We were one of the first, if not the first. That's what I thought, yeah. Because we didn't have seven fours. Right. Uh, we'd given away the ones that 
we got from People Express. They were real old 7.4s. So now we were stuck with DC-10s, and they weren't meeting the R&P requirement for right. Europe. Right. So they decided rather than upgrade them for the R&P requirement, we'll just order more 777s. Right. And, and for those listening to, the ETOPS is? It is um, engines turning and people swimming. <laughs> or people no, swimming. No, no, that's perfect. No. That's perfect. Let's stay there. Let's just stay with it's, that. It stands for Extended Twin operations. Right. And, it's, to, and it's essentially how to address overseas operations yeah. when you only have two motors. Right. So when you lose one, obviously you're going to descend. Yeah. And obviously there's a whole litany of issues that, right. that occur there. Hence the 180 degree circle 180. that gets you around. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So you left um, at 61, decided you'd had enough. Yes. Packed your bags and left. And that's when you came here. Actually, or, or I, spent, spend some time? I spent almost 11 years before I came here I was, because I had things to do and I had buddies here and they kept saying, Huck, you really need to take a look at this. Right. Because we really like it here. Oh, that's fantastic. I think you'd like I'm it. I'm glad to hear that. And finally, I said, well, okay. They said, well, will you give me a resume? I want to take it into the owner of the company. And I said, well, yeah, here's a resume. And then uh, they said, well, uh, how about coming on up? And, of course, as soon as I walk in the door, they say, well, here's the owner's office. You want to go and say hi? What are you going to say? So I went and said hi, and I see this guy that's talking to me like any of my squadron commanders. Oh, all right. Yes. And I'm saying. You're referring to the potty mouth, I assume. <laughs> Every third word's a cuss word. No. No, really. And the guys that told me that, they said, Noel runs this like a squadron. And I said, well, yeah, it sounds pretty good. So I went in there, and we had a nice chat. Then they showed me the facilities. I saw the memorabilia. And then on the way out, I'm saying goodbye to the guys, and that's when you came out. Oh, we're glad to have you. We're glad to have you. Yeah, just, I just love uh, it here. Invaluable. It's great. So from your, your varied background, which is wonderful, and it's, again, one of the reasons that uh, I, I love having guys like you here, because you bring so much to the table and um, different facets of both the military and the corporate life. Um, uh, the commercial life, I should say. With what you've seen, and you've been here a while now, from what you've seen, um, you know, and I've, I've tried to, try, everybody that's kind of involved in this process, I kind of try to go down this road because everybody's got kind of a different philosophy on this. But from what you've seen um, with the corporate guys coming through the 525 and 500 program, where do you see are some of the problem areas that we, we develop as far as going through either initial or recurrence that you've come across your plate so far? Okay, well, I'll start that by saying that I was in awe of the experience of my fellow instructors, and I decided that I'm going to try to bring myself up to their level, and I'm going to sit in. And as you remember, I sat in on an awful lot of classes, yes. a lot more than I needed to, but in my mind, I needed to because I wanted to see different techniques yes. and so forth. Then I said, Well, there's in a on, huge difference between listening and teaching. A huge difference. And I had to or I chose to sit on a lot of simulators. And to answer your question specifically, I have been so impressed with the general aviation product, the hands on these guys and gals. They right. can fly airplanes very well. Right. The only thing that I have noticed that would not get by a Part 121 checkride right. is the biggest problem, the biggest violation for airline pilots and all pilots is altitude deviations, as you well know. Right. You would not get through a check ride in a two-man crew 
certainly not a continental, and I'll bet no place else, unless when an altitude was changed, unless each pilot pointed yep. and and yeah. verbalized the new altitude. Yeah. It's easy to set 1,900 instead of 2,000, mm-hmm. and it, you just wouldn't get by a check ride. It's a common complaint, I think, through the corporate industry, too, that standard operating procedures are they're they're not nearly at the level that they should be as far as the 121 side of it there is definitely a, a more lax attitude towards those SOPs and uh, it's a it's a common complaint not a, not even in training facilities but I mean even at, at corporate flight departments now once you get into the corporate flight department world under 135 or anything of that nature it does kick it up a notch you it do does. have then those standard operating procedures but you're exactly right from a um, just purely maybe a single pilot operator or anything of that nature. The SOPs are almost non-existent, even though there's ones that come from the manufacturer. You know, you can accept or decline those as you see fit. Um, but I do agree with you. I think that's one of the things that corporate aviation is working on. Um, we've got some new stuff coming out, too, as everybody's starting to become aware. Um, risk management, you know, that's starting to take into account the fact that if you don't have standard operating procedures, the weather's bad, you know, all of these factors that come into play then start to give you a lower and lower rating as it relates to your your risk management on that specific, you know, leg. Um, I agree with you. Standard operating procedures. I wish one of the things, one of the reasons that I even wanted to do this was to try to bring, you know, Chapter 1 from the American Airlines training um, philosophy into the corporate world, which is, you know, rote is adequate. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you do it the same every single time. Mm-hmm. You don't deviate from that. And there is some serious safety attached to that. You know, then you have to f- sprinkle in some of the corporate world too, which is it's it's a different deal. You know, mm-hmm. when you're when you're working for the airlines, you and I know, you're going to Tokyo. You've been to Tokyo before. You're going to Tokyo tomorrow, and you're going there next week. And so you really get to be aware of that airport, mm-hmm. the route that gets you there. Mm-hmm. Very little changes between that. Mm-hmm. But corporate, every single time you take off, you're going someplace different. Mm-hmm. You're going someplace new. The modern technology now with the avionics packages, I just saw that um, I think it's either, uh, I think it's flightplan.com has now got interactive 3D visuals of airports now. So you can see the terrain, you know, the Google maps of the terrain Mm -hmm. where the airport sits in association with roads, you know, so when you pop out of the clouds, you've seen the thing before. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the first time you go to Telluride and you haven't seen it before, it's pretty awe inspiring. Yes, it is. So I think those standard operating procedures getting back to your point, um, would really take the edge off of that stuff, you know? And it's it's a testament, though, too, to both the equipment and the crews that we still have a pretty high safety, um, you know, rating as far as accidents or, or incidents that occur within the corporate environment. Yes, it is. And this has to all be kept in perspective of the fact that the airlines have huge budgets for training. Yes. They have huge liability for accidents. So... The whole airline could get shut down, so therefore they allocate a lot of funds to their training departments, pay a lot of instructors higher than the line pilots, and they work on these things. So you would expect that they're able to set a bar that is the others don't have the money to get there, but fortunately— But we can steal. We That's right. (laughs) But we at Loft— we nudge steal. Them, nudge them to center. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. I wish we had a little more time with the clients sometimes too. You know, with the I with do. the national norms and the minimums that exist. You know, the three day recurrence. I mean, I get it, but I sure would love to spend a little bit more time with these guys and get outside of too that the normal process of getting them current, knocking the rust off, 
getting them to the check ride and then out the door. But sometimes you like you just want to spend a little more time talking about some of the new stuff that comes down the pipe. Right. You know, I mean, I was just looking at this new matrix too for runway conditions, where they've changed. You know, you've got the zero 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 oh, yeah. two two two, and it's it's. I think it's a pretty good job. And as this comes across the wire, and a lot of these airports start changing to that matrix of using that that runway gradient, or I shouldn't say gradient, but uh, runway conditions yeah. monitor, that's, well, I, most of the pilots don't even know about that yet. It's much more descriptive of what you're looking at. Right, exactly. But it's, I think it's our job, too, from the 142 side, to take those new things that come down the pipe. You know, the, the we I just put a, a, a flyer in our boxes about the um, single engine stuff, the single engine climb gradients, and et cetera, et cetera, being, having been done wrong for quite some time. And the FAA has finally just had enough. I said, guys, you're teaching this wrong. You know, SIDS and STARS, that's not what you're looking at as far as climb gradients is single engine stuff. It's all engines operating. Mm-hmm. And I think it's our job to pass that along. So I, I'd love some more time with these guys. You know, a fourth okay. day to say, all right, here's the fourth day. You're all done with your check ride. You're good to go. Now let's talk about some stuff you probably didn't even know was coming down the pipe. Exactly. And I, I, I don't know how to accomplish that task, but um, it sure would be nice to at least give it a shot at some point to, to employ. I think you know, Flight Safety, CAE, they do kind of a master's program where yeah. they – they bring that in, and that's uh, that's that's a that's a neat idea to continue that pilot education. Yes. So SOPs is one. Anything else you can think of that might be something we can we can work on as a as a corporate side? Well, sort of falls into the SOP thing, but so many times when I'm training a two pilot crew, again they were all two pilot crews at Continental, right. and I was uh, an APD. There, so I was an and FAA. We've had plenty of conversations FAA about single pilot versus crew. Right. Yeah, and I will see. You would never get through a check ride as a two pilot crew at Continental unless both pilots, on a missed approach or on a takeoff, said positive rate. Right, right. So it's positive rate. If you don't hear it again, you say positive rate until he says it, because. Pilots know it's procedure to say positive rate, so just out of procedure, they'll say positive rate, and guess where the VSI is? Yeah, but that's is. not why they're doing it. They're doing it because there's a cockpit voice recorder, and they're going to get in trouble. Right. <laughs> so uh, both of them had to confirm it before you raise the gear, and that's just a critical thing, sure. particularly in a rejected landing when you're 20, 30 feet off the runway, because you're probably going to settle on the runway. I settled in a 777 when I was sent to go around at 20 feet. All right. Right. And that's okay yeah. as long as you haven't raised the gear yeah. pretending that it's positive rate. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, the other thing was I was put in charge of developing an advanced maneuver syllabus, which is basically upset training like we have here. And uh, you were well-versed in that with the T-39 stuff and everything. Yes. But I put together a video and all kinds of show-and-tell stuff that was played in recurrent training and in initial training for Continental on, on upsets. Oh, yes. that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Do you still have that video? I do. <laughs> you think Continental will let me use it? I <laughs> Well, it's United now. They don't care. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Got a different name. Yeah. That and I also developed our nav approaches to an RNP of 0.3. Oh, wow. So about the same time Alaska was doing the same thing. Correct? About the same time. They they're really the charter member of that. Right. Yeah, we had Del. named Steve. Right. Yeah, we had Dell in here talking and, about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. Yeah. And the RMP for, again, for those of us who don't know what that means? Required navigation performance, and its running mate is ANP, which is actual navigation performance. And in an FMC aircraft, if the actual navigation performance doesn't meet 
what's required for that phase of flight. An and that example, changes. Example proof. would be uh, how and many satellites are available, et cetera, et cetera. That would affect it. Okay. And the example of the RNP is for en route, it might be two miles. For descents and climbouts, it might be one mile. You get down to approach. It's everything we take for granted now, yes. which because all the GPSs are doing that. Right. And they'll tell you at, at, at your destination if right. you don't have the appropriate RNP. Right. And it'll either be 0.5. Or 0.3, or we're working on 0.15 when I left. Holy smokes. Now, that's within if, 10 feet. <laughs> if the actual performance doesn't meet the RNP, you will get an enunciator that says nav unable RNP. And it means you can't count on shooting that RNAV approach that was depending on RNP. Right. Of course, if you had a WAS input, that would be an update from the ground to give you what you need. Right, right. Now, you just said a lot of things there that I think is, is confusing, but it's all basically tied into to having non-precision approaches even more accurate than, say, the ILS is, or That's striving correct. for those non-precision approaches to That's come essentially across the board, everything's a precision approach. That's right. right? Self, lateral lateral self vertical guidance. Self-contained. Self-contained. You're, you're not relying on a ground nav aid working. You're relying on what's in your airplane working. Sure. Knowing and the satellites. No, <laughs> yes. So you're, you're relying on GPS with a satellite input. Right. So you've got a GPS input from the satellite, which is even better than GPS. So, so explain that to me. Okay. You, you kind of lost me on that one. I, I hear where you're going. Sure. You initialize your FMS okay. on the ground. For right. instance, if you're JFK, it's going to have the coordinates, hopefully, of your ramp spot. Sure. And then you're going to accept that, and it's going to set the FMC position to that. As you take off, if you didn't have a GPS input, you would have some drift rate like you do in any nav system. So as you fly from takeoff to destination, you would develop an error. Everything develops an error, nothing's sure. perfect. Sure. But if you have GPS update, now it takes out that error every, some periodic frequency, maybe every minute. Now when you get to your destination, you have got essentially as accurate an FMC position as you did on the ramp when it knew what your ramp spot was, right. your gate. Right. So now you're flying with that. If you didn't have that input, I can guarantee you, you would have a nav enable RNP right, right there. Right, right. Well, that's kind of old school Loran stuff if you didn't have the input then. Exactly. That ground station. Very, very analogous. All right, right. Same deal. So then, again, we're striving for precision approaches across the board, which I think within our lifetimes that will actually happen. The non-precision yep. environments just slowly going away yes. with everything that's happening. And then both vertical and and longitudinal access to, you know, having essentially a false glide slope wherever it is that you're trying to shoot these approaches. We're uh, instituting that into the sims, which is just fantastic. I mean, now I still would say, though, the hair on the back of my neck still kind of stands up when I'm shooting a, a glide slope that my airplane made up for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> not coming off of a, you know, a glide slope on the ground. But, you know, from an old school standpoint, I still get a little nervous about that. Love the technology, but I still it still has my full undivided attention. So I'm not the only one. No, I guess yeah, there you go. Good. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> but the beauty of all this, of course, is you've got a constant power setting for that approach, not relying on anything out there right. to give you your three degree. Exactly, a glide slope. A instead normal of glide slope. power on, power off, right. power on. This darn dive and drive that, that's caused been, so many accidents. Yeah. It, it should have died a long time ago. Long time. And they're they're very you know unstabilized approaches. You know, the, and we see it in the sim all the time too. That's where that's where most of our failures come from, on the non precision side. Not surprised. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I you know I like that two uh, two elements of, of things that we're having trouble with, and then um, 
from a from the airline standpoint, what I brought from that was they really are striving for perfection. I mean, they really are. And their accident rate reflects that. There's just no question about it. I think if we can bring that philosophy into the corporate side of it, too, from continuing to strive for perfection, you know, and I think that what the airlines did, too, which is interesting towards the FAA, is is that they're almost setting the precedent by saying, look, we're not going to do this 12 months anymore. We're coming. To, we're going down to nine. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to bring these folks back in at more of a, of a constant interval because we've determined that at a 10 or 11 month mark, we're really rusty. As you mm-hmm. just said, too, when you stop flying, you know, that scan goes away within weeks if you're not flying. It's completely gone in a month. So understanding that if we don't have these folks out there flying, especially guys on reserve or, or the like, um, we're going to have to increase that that variable. I know some of those things have been tried to bring they've tried to bring that into the corporate world to try to reduce those minimums. One thirty five is nice because it's a six month you know for a two ninety seven mm-hmm. check for an instrument competency check, but for the straight ninety one world we we still haven't gotten there. I yeah. think the insurance companies might have something to say with that as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see that not just from a business standpoint, but I'd like to see it from a, a piloting standpoint that. The frequency might, you know, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, even Continental was down to nine months uh, swing on Con- their training. Continental was six months for captains and one year for first officers. Okay. But a captain had to come in every six months. Now, that changed to a different interval with AQP. And I was leaving. Can you tell me what AQP is? Yes. Or tell the listeners what AQP is. Of course. Now, let me, can I make up something? Oh, yeah. You don't have okay. to. No, I just – you don't have to give me the, what the letters stand no, for. No, it stands it's for Advanced Qualification Phase. And – And it's a, a procedure completely written by the airlines. Absolutely. FAA had – FAA just went through an approval process. Yeah, FAA, it, right? That's exactly right. The airline can write it and the FAA can choose to disapprove it. But what it has done is it has brought in a lot of the CRM right. features into it. And that is entering the corporate world. You can fail a check ride for CRM sure. at an airline now. Yeah. And you can well, you be, can't here too. <laughs> you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, and that's you in can, the ATP practical test. You standards. can be yanked off the line if enough first officers talk about this captain that's got his own way of flying an airplane. Yeah, yeah. They're going to pull a f- captain off the line. And we would. I've been in many of these uh, uh, sessions where you sit down and you talk and you have them both in the room with you. Sure. And maybe several first officers in the room with said that captain. All have, that all have a, this guy on their no-fly list. Exactly. And then he's got to be observed in the simulator. And very often he gets an extra sim or two extra sims. And he might get fired out of that. Right. Right. Yeah, standard operating procedures are definitely the way to go. It's, it's a proven commodity. I mean, there's no question about that. Yeah. So, yes, I, I agree with you. But I ha- And I have a, I've seen this AQP program, too, starting to – I think there's even some corporate flight departments that have instituted it. Um, you know, fairly easy process to get approved, too, since the airlines have kind of hoed that road, which they do with a lot of stuff, um, enable these smaller corporate flight departments to say, well, wait a minute, this is a pretty good way of going about it. You know, obviously, if the airlines, from a cost standpoint, from a training standpoint, from a safety standpoint, it brings those three things to the table. Right. Very interesting. And I, I think it would be nice to see the corporate world really embrace that as a, as a type of training. Yes. Anything else that you can think of is uh, if you're, you know, if you're, let's say you're giving some advice to somebody coming in for initial typewriting, never done it before, what do you think they should show up um, ready to either do or have accomplished prior? Well, a lot of the fundamentals of having gone through the flight manual, get an idea of the systems that the instructor is going to cement for them, 
you can memorize for any airplane limitations, and by golly, you can at least get a good handle on your memory items. Right. I think, think any 142 company sends right. that stuff out ahead of time. So, yeah. so uh, just like we do, those things out there. And then I think that it's good for every instructor in every system to tell it how it applies to flying the airplane. I always, That's as, a great I, point. That's as a great I get point. them in day four, day five, day six, those last couple systems I teach, I start incorporating, okay, you always hear comments about a pilot and he's either, yeah, he's a good average pilot or he's a real good pilot because he's always ahead of the airplane right. or he's eh, sort of below average because he's always behind the airplane. So <laughs> I, like to, I like to transition that into a pilot thinking about, ask himself the question in the simulator or in the airplane, what's next? Right. And what's next usually breaks and down. And what am I doing wrong? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. What am I doing wrong? Yeah. But what's it, it generally breaks down into, have I got all my checklists done that I should have? Right. And if you got those done, do I have my configuration? Right. Or could I configure, for instance, to approach flaps at this point? And the final thing is if you got checklist and if you're up with the airplane's configuration, if I'm in altitude hold, can I set the next altitude because I've been cleared for the approach? Sure. Because all those yeah. things cause yep. a and, real mess yeah. when you're in a time crunch. And especially, too, with us, you know, I, I, I want to say it's an 85% of the pilots that we train are all single pilot. You're, you're, all you're doing is double-checking yourself. Absolutely. So you that, that constant recheck and recheck and recheck. And I love that comment about setting the next altitude. That That is such a time-saving and space-freeing element to get some of that water out of your head when you're already completely saturated with everything else that's going on. Plus, you know, that guy on the panel behind you putting the engine fire in oh yeah here 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 it comes type of deal well i watched that for 20 years of continental being in flight standards for 20 years either on the line or as an apd right and looking for those common mistakes is that what you're talking about absolutely yeah and then as i came through here when i was hired a great instructor named del morris (laughs) he's been on the podcast we had him on he some yeah, yeah i listened to his podcast oh good good and it cemented those things and i said you know what huck that's what you've been teaching all along, right. and think of it as what's next, because that's well, how Dell phrased it, what's sure. next. Sure, That's a great way of saying it. That's a great way of saying it. So what's the, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, and you don't have to answer this question, uh, but guys like you usually know, what's next for Huck? Well, if I get asked in two years, why am I still working up at Loft at <laughs> 73 years old, you know what my answer is going to be? Because uh, you're not at 75 yet? <laughs> Because I don't have a hog trip scheduled, maybe. Perfect. No, perfect. Well, no, you my always get time off for that. My answer is going to be because I really enjoy it, and I'm still enjoying it. I'm glad. So I'm that's glad. what's that's what's up for me. Excellent. I'm a huge family man, and I run a hunting club of my old Naval Academy classmates and fellow this fighter pilots. This is a pilots. good time to plug it. What is it yep. called? Yeah, it's called Hunt 69. Excellent. Got a website? We're, we're class of 69. No, but we do have... Uh, Facebook, okay. Facebook, sure. And if you, well, if Hunt sixty nine, yes, okay. And, and if you search for Jim Huck Harris, you'll see something about Hunt sixty nine. There might even be some lies about my Top Gun experience on there. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, Mr. Harris, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Really appreciate it, and uh, I'd like to do it again soon if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Brilliant. Thanks for coming. You're very welcome. <laughs>